Welcome to The Hub, conversations about important ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. This is a podcast about the serious issues of our time. In this, our first episode, we want to introduce ourselves and give you some idea of where we're coming from. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds approximately right. Okay. And I guess we should mention that because of the coronavirus pandemic, we're not in the same room together. Or the same town. No. So we're doing the best we can. So we're going to tell you uh, a little bit about ourselves. Ken, you want to go first? How'd you get to this point? Well, you said we're going to talk about serious issues. There's several of them. We're obviously going to focus on Ernest Becker. But for me, what really started me jettisoning from normal life was uh, learning about temperament, personality type. I learned about that after years of working in high technology contracting sales down there where you're living. And I was just so discombobulated and spun around by this information that shortly thereafter, I ended up leaving the business world and trying to figure out what it is that I'm actually supposed to be doing here. That led me to the mother of all midlife crises. I came through a fairly complicated sequence of people, Sam Keen, Joseph Campbell, among two that stand out. And then after a lengthy ride to the state of Maine, With a Jesuit priest, friend of the family, I was just talking the whole time we went up there and on the way back. And when he got back to Connecticut, rummaged around in his study and came out with a book, which was The Birth and Death of Meaning by Ernest Becker. And he said, I think that you're going to find some of this very interesting and helpful. So I read the book. I couldn't really get it the first time. I read it a couple of times. Then I went online and found the Ernest Becker listserv and found remarkably smart people talking about this stuff. And I really felt like I'd come home a little bit. But then I was up and down, you know, when you're when you're all by yourself and nobody gets what you're doing, you can go into some depression. And I would get frustrated at times and posted a rather ranty rant uh, saying this is all a bunch of, you know, mental masturbation and nobody's ever going to do anything about this. And when the dust cleared, there was one short email said, oh, I've been looking for something to do about this. What did you have in mind? And that email was from you. And a week later, I was sitting in your living room uh, in Westport, and we were talking about doing a cable access show about Ernest Becker's ideas. That's, well, that's, how, yeah, we got, that's it, how I got there with you. And really, I think one of, the, one of the interesting things about your story is you really dropped out. You were a salesperson. You were in the business world. I had a, mor- uh, I had a mortgage. Um, yeah. You're a citizen. I, I was I yeah. was doing everything you're supposed to be doing and I but I was deeply unhappy because those were all things I had chosen to do because it was communicated to me by the society that those are things that I was expected to do. And so I wanting to do what you're told, I did what I was told and but I wasn't really that happy about it and I always felt misunderstood. And that's when that Myers Briggs test just completely spun me off the road. But and you were you were off the beaten track. You were you know an atypical person. At Absolutely. That point. And I know that being different in your thinking, uh, you don't look different from anybody else, but you're thinking different, and so that's hard. You're you're now unconventional. You are resisting the norms of the society that you've been born into, that you're living in. It, it was actually kind of revisiting some experiences I'd had when I was when I was very young, but this time understanding them from a social science perspective and not just thinking, oh, wow, there's something wrong with me. When I'd had to go off to school and be with other kids, it would be rather, uh, rather excruciating mm. at times. Yeah. You know, and, and so I had 
plenty of practice feeling like a weirdo <laughs> from start st- starting at a very yeah. early age. And, you know, that's, I mean, if you're a weirdo, you're a weirdo. You might as well be proud of it and not try to hide it. Took a long, lot of years to for me to get right. to that point. Right. But got, get there, I did. And yes, I very much dropped out and Joseph Campbell and followed my bliss and all that stuff. And it led me here. So, Steve, how did you end up uh, sitting in that living room with me talking about Ernest Becker? Yeah, I think I had a, a different path to wind up there, but I think the most important thing for me in terms of intellectual development was reading Denial of Death by Ernest Becker back in 1977. That was an important year for me. I, that's the year I met my future wife, Goldie, and we decided we were going to take a vacation together, and I was going to take this book and do some light reading on the beach, and it was anything but light. It was it was mind-blowing. Yeah, it was reading. really, really yeah. a difficult time because she was out you know, visiting relatives, and I was sitting there with my head about to explode, saying, "This book, this book, you got to look at this book." And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." You know, let me go talk to my aunt. And that and Escape from Evil was really an important book for me. And the result of that experience left me very misanthropic, very negative about the world and people, and very melancholy for a while. And I had to kind of get beyond that. But I was, in a, I was in a different place because I had left my job. I was also in a kind of a sales role in the phone company when I got out of college. And after doing that for four years or so, I said, nah, you know, I can't do this. This is not for me. I'm going to New York and I'm going to be in the theater and I'm going to be the next Elia Kazan, which of course I didn't quite make it. And at the time I said to my <laughs> father, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to leave my job and I'm going to go to New York. He says, well, you've got a good job. What are you doing? You know, he worked in a warehouse. I was in a white collar job in a suit and tie and all. And he said, nobody gets to do what they want to do. And I thought, wow, that's incredible fatherly advice, which I've never forgotten. But wow. it was a, that, was, that was a point, I think, where I more or less left the conventional world to go into the world of the theater off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway in New York. And then a few years after that, I read Denial of Death. So you didn't really have an event that catalyzed this. You just kind of made up your mind one day. It, well, I was always in theater in high school and college and amateur theater. Oh. I, you know, that was a that was my thing. But it was all, you know, at community theater. I was, it, but it was amateur. I, I, made, I made some money at it mm-hmm. on the side. But I really had made a decision then to go to New York and pursue my dream and all of that, that, you know, as if I was in a TV show. But I think the second real revelation was when, like you, I discovered the Becker Foundation online and I began to understand terror management theory that Sheldon Solomon and his cohorts had developed. And that was a revelation because now Becker is as much philosophy as it is science. And they're theories. They're unproven, untested theories. And a lot of people dismiss them for that reason. Right. But the terror management theory folks came along in the 80s and they said, we have the ability to test these theories in laboratory conditions as social psychologists. And they developed a very, um, to me, fascinating discipline that brought Becker's ideas into a whole new realm of science. And people can 
debate the results. They can debate the interpretation, but they can't debate the data. The data is very, very firm. And it's not just one or two guys in a basement. This is social psychologists in major universities. All over the planet. Yeah. Europe, uh, in Israel, even in, even in China. It's been in Australia. I mean, these studies have been done, uh, like you say, across the planet, across decades, men and women yep. showing no real, no real differences between the genders. That was very, very important to me because now I began to say, this is something that's not just an intellectual pursuit. This is, this is science. It's real. Right. And it has ramifications for the entire world. So, yeah. so that's when I, yeah, it could. yeah. So that's when I got involved with the Becker Foundation, got on the list, serve, answered your email, and you wound up in my living room. That's right. what we had in common, was a regard for the works of Ernest Becker. And being geeks interested in social science. Excuse me, speak for yourself, but I think that's probably accurate. Yeah, I think everybody who's interested in this is geeky to somebody. Right. So do you, so we had a common interest. Do you want to uh, give a short take on, on Ernest Becker's ideas? Okay, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try to be brief. So Becker starts with two things about humans that he can be sure about. We're animals, per Charles Darwin, and like all living things, we have a drive to stay alive. So some people, I think, erroneously call that a survival instinct. At the same time, we're all going to die. And any sane person knows that, that he or she is going to die someday. And those two facts, our drive to survive and the inevitability of our deaths, create a problem for the human animal. So if you think about fear, it's an extremely important animal response to imminent danger. It's what kept our ancient ancestors alive, kept them from getting eaten by tigers and lions and, and jackals. Yep. Fear is a response to the imminent danger. So you hold a knife to my throat, I feel fear. But the notion of my death someday, sometime in the far future does not make me feel fear. What I feel is what we call dread, the fear of something that hasn't happened yet. We have this ability to repress that dread for Darwinian reasons, which I won't go into, but repression is extremely important. It's for very good reasons. It's not perfect. Because if we had perfect repression, then we would repress the fear and it would no longer help us stay alive. And our ancient ancestors would have been eaten by lions. So they could repress the fear up to a point, but not completely. And so we right. have right. So we have this ability to repress the fear of death, the dread of death, and the result, what's left, is anxiety, death anxiety. And we defend against death anxiety in a number of ways. The major one is culture. We use culture to defend against death anxiety. We have immortality projects. We have things like what we call heroism, a, a term that William James coined over 100 years ago. Religion was the most important defense against death anxiety because it promised actual immortality. All religions tell you you're not going to die. You're going to live forever in heaven or wherever. Right. The problem is in the 21st century, religion has declined. Now, some people will go, what are you talking about? But when you think about it, our 21st century secular culture is nothing like the pilgrims, the, the Puritans that founded this country or the Middle Ages. Yeah, because we've had scientific research. Exactly. Uh, you know, our culture uses secular heroism as a defense. And it's not as effective as religion, unfortunately. No, it's not. But as Nietzsche puts it, religion's not believable anymore. So 
the most powerful defense we have against death anxiety is self-esteem. And that's been proven in the laboratory. Well, it's been proof is a hard word. Uh, it's certainly been demonstrated. Uh, demonstrated, and these ideas have been validated. So that good feeling about ourselves, that our families and our culture provides for us, that's self-esteem. And our culture uses secular symbolic immortality to afford us with conscious and unconscious self-esteem. A lot of this is unconscious. You have to keep that in mind. Almost all of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Our defenses, we're not aware of them. Correct. Our culture expects us to achieve. We're expected to attain wealth, fame, power, eternal youth and beauty. Yep. But those are secularly provided symbolic immortality, and they just don't defend us very well against death anxiety, because only a tiny fraction of us can achieve wealth, fame, and power. Right. And even those with youth and beauty can't hold on to them for very long. So as a result, we as a society remain driven, stressed out, afflicted with what some experts would call diseases of despair. Yep. Alcohol and drug abuse, suicide, addictions to things like gambling, workaholism, shopping, sex addiction, uh, social media addiction. Yeah, a new one. Yeah, the list goes on. We're always coming up with new ways. We're, we're, we're constantly exposed as a society. We're exposed to unconscious death anxiety, and we're unconsciously seeking distraction and relief. 21st century Americans find themselves in a profoundly unhappy state, what I have called a toxic culture. Right. So death denial is Becker's primary focus in his major book, The Denial of Death. In your mind, how does death denial affect our understanding of the major contemporary issues that we find ourselves in right now, like the coronavirus or the environment, or things like 9-11? We're going to talk about the coronavirus, but probably not right off the bat because it's a True. little too close right now. It's a little easier to talk about an event that most people living now remember, but it's got enough distance that it's not quite so ominous, and that would be the uh, attacks on the World Trade Center of 9-11. Yeah. That was the first time since the day that would live in infamy that most people can't remember anymore, but the attacks by the Japanese on December 7th of 1941... That was in Hawaii, but it was technically on American soil. This is the most attacked on American soil that we'd really ever been, and at a scale like that. And, and it was not by accident. Those towers were sort of the center of our financial zeitgeist. They were ground zero before they were ground zero, if you will. And that was not an accident that I think they chose to attack attack us there, but it, it shook us to the core of our foundation because it's just not something that the modern psyche had had to deal with, being attacked, physically attacked. And it defined that decade and defined our you know international relations ever since. Absolutely did. Uh, the world absolutely changed then, and it is likely changing right now. Again, this is a little bit more insidious, and it's not one event that has a beginning, middle, and an end, and then a long recovery period. This one has a long period where it's still affecting us and nobody knows what the final outcome is going to be because nobody knows what the extent of the damage is going to be, not just to human life, but to our economic realities. Yeah, but what's the what's the Beckerian take on this? Well, it's made us mortality salient hmm. the way uh, the way Sheldon's experimental psychologists do when they conduct experiments and they have a control group that they leave alone and then they have another group where they remind them that they're going to die someday. 
and just that reminder that they're going to die someday changes the way they behave and in very predictable ways. And that's what's happening to us now. Everybody who's walking around with a surgical mask and rubber gloves and cutting a wide swath around their fellow citizens is thinking about their own mortality, which is something we don't like to do much. And understandably so, because it's a it's an unpleasant part of life. Maybe the worst, most unpleasant part of life is that knowledge. I think we're being... But we're conscious of it. We are conscious of it partially. I don't think anybody really has the full awareness. As Sheldon famously said, if, if you had the full awareness, you'd be cowering behind your bed in the corner, groping for a Valium the size of a Buick. No, no, right. Nobody can handle that. It's too, it's too horrible. We all need mechanisms of coping with this or we're doomed or you go crazy. So we're repressing. Yeah, absolutely. We're repressing, we're denying. So what happens when you are confronted with your own mortality? You're saying it changes us. Becker tells us that one of the things we do is we deny that we're animals. We deny our animality. The one thing that we really know for sure, we deny. We deny that we're going to die. We imagine that we're immortal spirits and we're not animals. We're something special right. in the scheme of things. Right. So then this virus comes along and it's a product of nature. Yes, it is. And when your mortality salient, as the terror management people would say, you have discomfort with nature in general. Yeah, we do. We don't want to be animals. We don't want to be part of nature because we don't want to die. And some of the experiments that they've done is show, you know, when they make people aware of their death and then they give them a chance to like not think about that for a little bit, but it's just below the surface of their consciousness. Yep. And then they ask them to talk about nature. They ask them, which do you prefer? And they look, show them pictures. People prefer a parking lot to a forest or a field or a stream. They deny right. being part of the natural world because those are things that you mm. seemingly have control over that's right good point yeah i mean just just to go back and and uh, just to, not to give spoilers but a, a preview of uh, the terror management guy's work is that we if, if culture is really the creation of an animal that's to, trying to deny its animality then a reminder of mortality should make that person tend to cling more aggressively towards cultural safety right. provisions. And just to go back to 9-11 to give an example, I don't know if you remember, most people remember, in the days and weeks following that terrible event, little American flags popped up everywhere. Right. The American flag is the most treasured symbol of our democracy and our nation. Yep. And it was a, a time that people needed to come together, and that was a little symbolic demonstration, if you will, that we're all in this together. We're all Americans. We were attacked as Americans, and we'll stay together as Americans, and we'll get through this as we always do as Americans. And a lot of people felt like that was a wonderful moment. They just, they were so proud. Yeah, right. Well, it was, it was a wonderful moment. I know that the modern secular people who've risen above religion and risen above political uh, affiliation with their country think that a flag is just a, a little colored piece of cloth and it doesn't have any meaning other than it's a little colored piece of cloth. But it's a lot more than that at the same time, and that's what people were demonstrating with a flag. So there's a lot of things we're going to talk about that are both and, you know? Yeah, but see, to me, but, but I, I mean, I vividly remember 9-11 and I felt extremely uncomfortable. Everybody did. With this 
No, no, no. I'm saying I felt extremely uncomfortable with this outpouring of nationalism, this outpouring of not just reverence for the flag or chanting USA, that kind of thing. That's fine. But this hatred and anger, 9-11 just unleashed this, these incredible feelings that are under the surface of our society. Every society has them. Yep. They're under the surface of xenophobia, these attacks on Muslims and attacks on, on people who just were foreigners. Did people just assume they were Muslims or whatever? Well, they're they're different. They're different. Anything anything different. Yeah, xenophobia. And it was, it, to me, I felt fear. When I saw the power of those emotions being unleashed in our society, I felt very, very uneasy. I can well understand what was going on, and I wrote about it at the time. Yep. But it, it's scary. And that thinking about that in terms of this pandemic makes me equally nervous. Yeah. Because... It brings up the very real possibility of a nationalistic, autocratic government takeover. As conspiracy theories, uh, you know, are all over. But when you really start to think about what fear does to a population, the conscious response is one thing, but the unconscious that no one is aware of, no one's thinking about, and some of the things that the terror management people have revealed, these responses include things like clinging to incumbent politicians. That's very common. Yep. You'll see after 9-11, Bush's uh, approval rating just skyrocketed. It was like in the 90%. Yeah. Look at Trump. Trump's approval rating has hit like 57%, even though most people would say, my God, the, the government is handling this thing very badly, terribly incompetently, and yet his approval rating's up. Yeah, but that but that's a that's an intellectual interpretation. Yeah. And the, the reason the approval rating of both those presidents went up is less intellectual and more emotional. Exactly. And not, not to make it too silly, but when children are frightened, they want daddy. Yeah. Well, they want charismatic leaders. That's been shown. That's what, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been shown too. Yeah. That given, given the choices between leaders who make compromises or who tend to bring people together those people who are intellectual who are intellectually capable of handling the situation right. no people they they'd, they'd rather have a flowery speech yeah, well, f- we i should say yeah. we but when they're terrified people want charismatic leaders and they are yes they and do. they're afraid of change they want yep. they want nostalgia they want to roll yep. back the clock they don't want a revolution. They want to make the, they want to make America great again, Steve. <laughs> well, they want to make America great again, or they want to turn back the clock to two thousand eight and elect Joe Biden because he looks presidential. It's it's all about the look. And oh, look, yeah. doesn't he look how straight and tall he is, and look how how well he he positions himself. And you go, this he's an empty suit. Pardon me, I don't mean to get too political. Easy now. But, but but I've heard people actually say that though he we couldn't elect them because they don't look presidential. Yeah, so like they, we even acknowledge that that's a requirement. Right, right. There's no there's no rationality here. This is all emotion, and of course, people like Yuval Noah Harari say that all democracy is based on feeling. All elections are based on emotion. Very little of it really has to do with rational 
right. issues or things like that. But same with anyway. all pur- all purchases. Right. If you look at it, it's the same as buying a car. True enough. True enough. Pe- yeah. People go through a lot of stuff, but it's really what your heart tells you is that's that's the car for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. And yeah. then in, I don't know if you remember, but the six months after buying a new car, you're constantly looking at things that reinforce the intelligence of your purchase. <laughs> yes. Right. People don't read ads for a car before they buy them. They read them mostly after they just bought that car. Well, yeah, yeah. Because it, they want to, you know, feels like they made the right decision. Or the, you know, the commercials appeal to your unconscious purchasing decisions. Like you're sporty, you're off road, right? You deserve luxury. You know, all this stuff that got nothing to do with transportation. No, you know, a car is a thing that gets you from point A to point B. Anyway, I think if nothing else. I would like our audiences to take away from our podcasts to just a couple of things. One, that these are unconscious processes at work, that we need to learn to recognize them in ourselves and in our society. So much that's talked about on TV it has to do with politics and economics, history, social norms. That's all fine. But what's going on underneath? And that's what we're going to get at in these podcasts. And the other thing is you have to learn to live with fear. I mean, fear is part of life. Yep. And if you let fear, if you let, more to the point, if you let other people manipulate your fear and manipulate you to get you to do what they want, like you say, buy a car or win an election, or whatever it is, that's dangerous. Well, and it's always been this way, uh, and yeah. and uh, ju- it's, but it's just in the 20th century and the second half that these ideas became really uncovered and tested True. by our friends. Yep. As you and I said more than a decade ago, that it, we thought maybe it would be beneficial if these ideas were introduced to, into the public discourse. Absolutely. So that they could be factored in when people are thinking about human beings. They've certainly already been factored in by people who are making the decisions now and and, uh, people who do advertising. They certainly understand how to manipulate us in this way. And political science is the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea of democracy is that we're all individuals. The early guys used to talk about us as sacred centers of consciousness. Hmm. They thought consciousness was this one big entity, but it's got too many sides and angles and complexities for any one person to understand it all. So we needed as many intelligent people as possible to so as to get the most differentiated angles of it so that we could eventually get the closest approximation to what's actually happening. Which is not easy to know what's actually happening. No, because... No, it's not. But it's actually it's actually the cornerstone of a democracy, yeah, yeah. and and vote and voting for leaders, True. and uh, that seems to be something that may become passe. Um, but it was a pretty good idea at the time. This is this is a subject for another podcast, I think. Uh, yeah, we probably way over, well, but overdid our in, our intended. <laughs> this is who we are. Show. Well, I think we've been talking about where the two of us are coming from and where our hopefully our podcasts in the future will be going. So I hope this conversation gives people a sense of where we're at. Yeah. And then in the next few weeks, we will have interviews with various experts and interesting people. Our next episode will feature Dr. Sheldon Solomon talking about self-esteem and the role it plays in our lives and in our culture. 
And hopefully you'll enjoy that and get a sense of what the rest of these are going to be about for the next, I don't know, however many months. That that's an amazing show. Also, Shel- Sheldon is incredibly yeah, yeah. This, charismatic and and funny. Yeah. yeah, and and the topic of self esteem couldn't be more important right now. Absolutely. So join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubconversations.com and support us on Patreon. And thank you for listening to The Hub, conversations about important ideas. Thank you very much. I'm Steve James. I'm Ken Swain, and we'll see you next time. Yep. Thank you, and stay safe, everybody.